1: Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is a two-time Tony Award-winning producer who has brought you shows such as Be More Chill and Natasha Pierre and the Great Combat of 1812. And the show we're going to talk about today, it is Bruce Robert Harris, everybody. Hi, how you doing, Patrick? i'm doing just fine bruce it's so nice to talk to you again thank you 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 for having me (laughs) socially several times and now it's great to see you in the in the slightly more formal but also more theatrical setting uh yes in my office and you in yours (laughs) in yours, there we go right as as it was meant to be and uh and you're here today to talk about bonnie and clive
0: every place that we go
1: The first question I always ask is, how did this show come into your life? And it's so interesting when I ask that question of someone who was actually involved in the in the genesis of the show from a production standpoint. So I'm excited to hear your answer too. how did Bonnie and Clyde, the musical, come into your life? You know, when we're children and we're all growing up and
2: we watch things on television or we all have an experience with something, I had a great experience with Bonnie and Clyde. Watching two very well-known actors get shot up in a car, but also rooting for them. <laughs> and you're always rooting for them to to take out that gasoline store and get that cash or whatever. It was always a caper. It was fun. And I enjoyed that as a child. And Jeffrey Richards became the lead producer of Bonnie and Clyde. And he has been very good friends with my business partner, Jack W. Batman. And he called us one day and he said, you know, I'm putting together this show. And I was like, hand up. I'm ready. I'd like to be a part of that. It just it has a lore to it that I thought would be amazing. And then I have a very dear friend, Jeff Calhoun, who directed it. And I thought he did an an amazing job. I thought the show was quite mistreated when it was here. The album mm. has done quite well. It has made money. I think it's almost even recouped, which is wonderful for a Broadway album. That's what we all hope anyway, right? And then we had two amazing performers that I became very friendly with and fell in love with their voices and them as people and performers and have done other things with them in the future. So there was a lot of... Groundbreaking things with Bonnie and clyde and and also, too, when we started on Bonnie and Clyde and we were developing that beautiful logo that's behind you with the bullet mm-hmm. and the ampersand and the the crack glass, I was in the room when we all discussed that, and it was kind of fun to be in that. Producers don't often get that opportunity. They're given crypt notes and fed it through email, and they're never in the room. And Jeffrey Richards was very kind and had invited us into the room. I think that was with Sereno Coin, and we sort of had the opportunity of choosing and having an opinion artistically and creatively. And I felt very loved, and I enjoyed that, and I was happy to raise money for the album.
1: So, when this is pretty, where is this in your producing career? Because when I look at your IB, IBDB credits, yeah, this seems to be on the Early. earlier on the earlier well, end. Yeah, my
2: my broadway producing career if we're just speaking Mm. about that started with with scottsboro boys
1: Mm
0: -hmm.
2: i just i fell in love with the story that was being told and i can relate this actually to bonnie and clyde because a lot of the stories or the lot of the shows that i became familiar with that i produced with jack was about storytelling it was about transporting an audience in a magic live box called the theater to another place where you would just transport yourself out for two or three hours and when i did scottsboro boys it was all about storytelling and i think bonnie and clyde is also about storytelling like i said before when you watch jeremy jordan and laura Osnes, you're rooting for them and you shouldn't be and you know that that's wrong but at the same point they were just so mesmerizing as a couple and i just fell in love with this relationship on the stage. And I had to be part of the album. I knew the album would do well. I knew the music would do well. I knew the composer. uh, I had just met the composer and I have loved all of his music. And I really thought it had a good chance. And that was one of the reasons we produced it on Broadway.
1: What do you say? So obviously Frank Wildhorn has a, you know, a long career and is, you know, (laughs) Hits, hits, misses, and everything in between, I think you could say uh and he is but he is a i would say opinion is split often on his on his between different camps of theater goers and i'm I'm glad you brought that up early though, but why do you think how do you think that affected bonnie and clyde uh, you know arriving in New York, and how do you feel it was was mistreated when it got there
2: well, after other shows like Civil War. Hmm. And Wonderland. I don't believe it got it got short shrift.
1: Hmm.
2: I think I think people should have put it aside and looked at it and saw exactly the craftsmanship that went into the music. And I do and still believe to this day. As a matter of fact, I will tell you that Laura Osnes came to my wedding and she sung my wedding song, which was How About a Dance, Ah. which is which is one of my favorite songs from Bonnie and Clyde. And yeah. she came with her husband and she was my guest and she sung that. I had a, I had a lot of Broadway people there when I right. did this, but it was very special to me. And hmm. she is very special. Her voice is very special. I think Jeremy is special. And I thought Bonnie and Clyde got short shrift. And perhaps I can't say, but um, it may have been that reason.
1: Sure. Yeah, it, it's a tricky. I mean, I'm very interested to, to ask you about the role of the of the producer in the modern Broadway theater?
2: I, well, I don't particularly like it in these modern shows because the mm-hmm. lead producers do most of the work mm-hmm. and, and the uh, co-producers or other producers are looked to raise a sum of money and they're listened to and sometimes invited to the table. But there's a lot less involvement today than there used to be when I started my career 20 years ago. And I've I enjoyed being in the room and I enjoyed seeing everybody and I enjoyed hearing what their comments were. Even if a show was going downhill, at least we were in it together. And Mm. in today's day and age, when a show goes downhill and you've brought in three quarters of a million dollars or a million dollars to the show and you're just a small entity, a small part of it, you often don't find things out until much later. And mm. I don't like that. I, I enjoyed being on the front line to doing that. So the, you, the new modern Broadway show has co-producers who are credited, who will win a, an award if it's honored to do so. But at the end of the day, we're not as involved as we used to be. When I'm a lead producer and I do that with my own projects, then I'm calling the shots. But it's nice to be part of the team. And that, mm-hmm. sort, of, that sort of has kind of flailed away. Also, too, when you look at some of these modern shows, there's 30 people.
1: Well, I was going to ask, like, yeah, just and to I, give people a sense, like, what's this? How many co producers are we talking about on some of these these shows? I
2: would say with Bonnie and Clyde, there were much less. It was in early days, the shows were much less money. You know, I would tell you um, when I did my first Broadway show with Barry Weisler, Fran and Barry Weisler with Jack Batman and I, that musical cost 4.1 million. 10 years later, doing something like On the Town, probably mm. was $10 million. Now you can't mm. even see a show for less than 15 or $16 and In some cases, they're upwards of 20 Hard to recoup, hard yeah. to convince investors, hard to raise money. The modern shows have become very, very costly. And the model has to be changed. Something has to change. And everyone's talking about it, but no one's done anything about it yet. And it's it's yeah. become very difficult. A lot of funds, a lot of funds, a lot of LLCs are getting involved with Broadway shows, and the personal touch is changing.
1: What do you? Uh, tr- I mean, obviously, there's inflation. There's other uh, other aspects to why COVID. costs go up. COVID, yeah. COVID, okay, would be a large large amount reason for the cost going up. And
2: the wars. I mean, you know, mm. re- literally. We were. I was just reading an article that a lot of wood comes from overseas. Mm-hmm. And when yes. building sets in London and New York, that wood isn't available. And if it is, it's 40% more, which raises the cost of your budget. We had Brexit in London, big, big for lighting, sound, and technical uh, aspects of shows in London caused mm. a big uh, increase for us. COVID also, not just with COVID people and COVID restrictions, but it just slowed everything down and it's made everything lengthier and it's Mm -hmm. made everything costlier.
1: Oh, that's interesting. So it is largely though, you would say cost of materials and and practicalities that are causing a crisis to go up. Some of
2: the the unions have raised rates and things. It's also very difficult with insurance. I mean, we've had Mm -hmm. a really difficult time. I think I can speak for all producers who had shows running during COVID. If your show had the opportunity of, of surrounding certain circumstances you were available to get COVID money and some of the shows weren't. And those shows Hmm. that shut up created an investor dearth that we didn't have, you know, and we really rely on investors. They want to help us do these shows. They definitely want to make money. They don't want to lose it. But at the same point, they want everybody to have an opportunity to make it. And that's just, that's the one thing we all want. I mean, I will speak for myself, but when it comes to being creative about Broadway musicals, it's about storytelling. When I go to the theater when I was a young boy and I saw Sugar Babies or Shenandoah, Kismet, they were the earliest shows that I ever saw, I left a changed man. And in so many ways, and I've always tried to bring that to my producing, I think it's just important to hire good creative people and tell a good story. So people buy a ticket and they'll leave and they'll tell two friends. Right. And that's how it should work. And Broadway still does work that way, but it can be difficult. And it it is currently difficult. We have almost 18 new shows coming in this season. They're not. Yeah. All going-
1: <laughs> They're not all going to make it. Yes, it's absolutely true. Yeah could eat a, themselves up. <laughs> yeah, it it's such an interesting, you know, the return has been such an interesting thing to watch from the outside. Um and then mainly also from a performer writer aspect, which is what my, you know, those are my friends and that's my entry point. Um but it does sort of feel like you say I, it was funny you said that everyone agrees something needs to be done but and but nobody's really putting themselves forward. I I, I deal with that almost on a daily basis doing arts education. It's the same sort of like the the system appears to be broken, but nobody and everybody agrees. But at the same time, no one's stepping up and saying, okay, so then this is what we're going to do. And then if they do, it doesn't get followed
2: as easily. Yeah. Right. I could say that part of this is theater owners. I can also Mm. say it's part of the deal making producers make with their co-producers. It's part of the deal when it comes to creatives, materials, fabric, however, or whatever is in the physical uh, production, but also too, we have a lot of competition today for marketing and advertising that we Broadway never used to have. The old adage used to be, if you saw it seven times, that turned into somebody actually buying a ticket, Mm. but that doesn't happen anymore. Because you're, you're bombarded with so many things in social media and in the press. Now it takes maybe 20 times. Oh, yeah, I heard about that show. Yeah, I'll buy a ticket to, oh, I heard that was good. Or no, nope, I had friends that saw that, not good. You know, word of mouth still helps, but I'll tell you that marketing and advertising, it takes a huge chunk of any budget for any show, Broadway, Off-Broadway, or tour. It's all the same.
1: Yeah, that's I hadn't thought about that, but that's a really interesting point, that the the sort of What's the the dilution of the of the advertising ability? Would you know that it it's everywhere, it's ubiquitous. We feel like advertising is all around us all the time, but it is so unspecified, untargeted. Like it's just, it's actually trying to be hyper targeted, which as a result means it's completely untargeted, in my opinion. It, yeah. It's
2: diluted. It's diluted, yeah. and I think that theater needs help. And these small grants that are coming in for budgeting. Or new shows that are coming in this season are helpful and could put the show at a place where investors could see some return of capital or ROI, as we call it. But mm-hmm. uh, it's not enough. It's not enough. We need to keep changing and we need to keep involving and we need to present good shows, new shows, original mm-hmm. shows. Even though Bonnie and Clyde was uh, a television movie and then become a the movie and it had celebrities in it. I just... I just love the way it was presented on stage. I always have. And I'm one of those people that still second acts my own shows. And I stand in the back and I watch them. And I just I I love them. I mean, I Mm. it's a magical moment. And when you touch people, I guess that's kind of why I've done this. I just have a lot of passion for what I've been doing getting a little more difficult these days <laughs>
1: sure sure well you have to love it i mean you know that i'm sure better than than most like that if you come I mean, you started as a performer is that if I i'm did. remembering correctly yeah and a dancer specifically correct
2: 27 years as a dancer
1: yes yeah and you went to juilliard am i not my I... I went to juilliard i graduated yeah. from
2: juilliard. i also went to the high school performing arts beforehand
1: okay uh, so no slouch you Yeah,
2: (laughs) I was I was I was privileged in my performing arts day to be an extra in the fame movie. Aha. It was very privileged to be touched by certain people in my life very early um, going to Rebecca Harkness and dancing there and meeting Lee Theodore, working in the American dance machine and really getting a nice foundation of what I did. And then when I went to Juilliard, working with people like Jose Limon and Agnes DeMille and Martha Graham and, you know, um, Anna Sakala, people that are no longer with us, but I'd had the opportunity of being touched by all of them and learning a little bit from all of them. I didn't even know who any of these people were, but, you know, dance history is I've been taking a lot of dance history over the years and I've been very fortunate. But I just love theater. I always have, being as a performer, I have no idea what my third act is going to be, but it's coming.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, how did you, let's stick with the second act then. How did you make the switch from performing to producing? It's a very interesting story. Um, In April,
2: 2001, I approached an author um, who wrote a piece called Elegies for Angels, Punks and Raging Queens, and it was done in England. And I was performing in England at the time, and I had done a benefit. And I did this one particular role, Joe, and I really loved what this was. And it took me about two years to raise the money. And I did a benefit in 2001. Meredith Vieira was our spokesperson. At those days, I was running around on my rollerblades. So I was... <laughs> Stephen DeAngelis was our casting director, and he was quite amazing. And um, we had a lot of celebrities and a lot of stars and um, Norm Lewis and Stephanie Pope and Alice Ripley oh. and Emily were all part of this particular showing of elegies. And I was very fortunate that some of my rogue emails, just learning email at that time, um, right. um, were getting out there. And um, we had a fallout out house and it was written about in the New York Times and as Meredith Vieira was happy to say, it looks like a producer's career was born. And I didn't know what it was like to bring all these people. I, I don't understand agents. I, I didn't understand agencies. I picked up the phone and I called people like Mario Cantone. And I said, do you want to do this? And he said, yes. You know, it it, it was just that way. And uh, of course, things have changed in all these years. But that's really how I began producing. And I did... Um, I did some not-for-profit work, and um, I was very touched to uh, be affiliated with Fred Vogel and the Commercial Theater Institute, and I had done the three-day, and then I was accepted to the 14-week program, and there was a brilliant, very smart man in the room. His name was Jack Batman, and he was coming from uh, just creating Chelsea Piers. Mm -hmm. He was one of those founders that did that. And we began working together and we've been sitting across at producing desks, partners desks, excuse me, for about um, 20 years.
1: Wow, that's incredible. That is a really yeah, that's a that's an auspicious beginning to, to kick off like that. What is the benefit for you of working with a partner like Jack to having someone else in, in you know, at your partner's desk with you, as you said?
2: I know a lot about musicals. I always knew a lot about musicals. Jack uh, is very into plays and taught mm-hmm. me an awful lot about plays. And I remember after we did Scottsboro Boys, a- as hard as it was to get through that, and we did go on to produce it in London and we were, produce- we were co-producers in London and so on. But um, he, uh, Bruce Norris had written this other play called um, Clybourne Park, and mm-hmm. it was a period of time before Black Lives Matter and all of that what was going on in neighborhoods, how they were gentrifying and how they were growing and what was going on. And Jack said to me, this is a winner. It won the Pulitzer. It's going to win the Tony. And um, it was about that time that I started educating myself on plays. And we were very fortunate to come on board. Um, We worked with Jordan Roth very closely on that Clybourne Park. And it was in one of his theaters that Drew Jampson owned at the time. And uh, we didn't just raise. We overraised, and we won the Tony. And Mm -hmm. it was a real proving ground having had such difficulty with Scottsboro boys, just because of the subject matter. You know, I tell you today, if we did that, I don't think there'd be any pushback. People would Mm -hmm. accept it. People would be entertained and educated by Mm -hmm. what the show was and look at these men's lives and what they were. And um, Clybourne Park had a, a real interesting story to tell. And so I learned a lot from him and Jack had been in the theater previously. He had been an agent. He had had a lot of other things. And we also started a not-for-profit where we produced um, gay-themed titles that otherwise didn't have the opportunity to advance. At that time, we didn't have the kind of plays we have on Broadway. We have all types of people doing these types of plays, and we did not have that at the time. So we worked on sponsorships and we created a festival. And that festival had two or three or four musicals and plays in a session. And we used to do that. We did that for eight years. And then we culminated the entire series. It was called the Gay Pride Series. And we culminated that with um, Andrew Lippa and Christian Chenoweth. And we did I Am Harvey Milk at Avery Fisher Hall. Mm. with several other producers, and the beneficiary was always the Harvey Milk High School. Mm. So during the course of us doing our festival, we did education, mentoring, and scholarships. So I think I've always been used to giving back. That's all I've ever done. Even at the source of my own salary, it was always something that I was taught. And I feel like educating people and entertaining people, and, and being able to hire creative people to create was, mm. was always interesting. That was kind of all of that. And that's why I do what I do.
1: I mean, that's so what. So what of those expertise you say you were in more in in, allowed to be involved in Bonnie and Clyde? What what do you like? What did you think you were bringing to Bonnie and Clyde when you were in in the room with those decisions specifically?
2: As a child watching the movie, seeing what Mm -hmm. impacted me, seeing what could impact people on stage. I mean, I hate to say it, but these thieves, these these characters, I cared about them. I didn't want them to get shot. When the grocery store guy got shot, I felt bad for him, but they kind of won. You know, it's a it's a struggle when you're watching Bugs Bunny, you know, and he gets Mm -hmm. it over the head or what. It's the same thing It's the Roadrunner. So um, I just enjoyed that. Being part of that and having my voice heard, I think Jeffrey made a lot of the producers in the room feel quite good about it. And he was very open to listening and he was very open to changing his mind. If people had a very good reason for changing, for example, the bullet hole or the ampersand or anything that's in the picture, they were sexier pictures pictures of Jeremy Jordan and Laura Osnis. We thought this spoke well. It was nice to be asked. It was n- not just asking for money. They're asking for an opinion. And that makes people feel good, makes you feel more, much more willing to work hard on something.
1: It's It's an interesting adaptational issue because it is not only, like you say, a TV movie. And a movie and a and a groundbreaking film. I mean, you know, the original Bonnie and Clyde is is cited. You know, every film student has to watch it and endless things written about it. But it is also a true story. And yeah. that's a sort of a three hander issue, because as I tell my writing students sort of all the time, it's great that you're writing a story based on something that happened. But it still has to be a story. It still has to have an arc. It still has to compel you have to pick an aspect of the story and kind of and kind of focus on it and i was very interested in in revisiting this how much i thought it wisely diverges from the film first of all in some key characterizations but then also does in key moments diverge from the strictest reality of of what happened in, in view of a larger truth of the characters.
2: The two things you need to remember about Bonnie and Clyde, it was real and it happened and nobody had cell phones and nobody had televisions and people only began listening to radio and they only heard the lore, these 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 gangsters and they shot up the bank. So I think as a producing team, what was really challenging was to show blood on stage to show Mm. what had actually happened. But at the same point, there was a romance between these two people that everybody bought. They were so amazing at what they did, these two actors. So you have a conflict. And that conflict is what the show is. But then you're also learning about their back lives, where they came from. You don't get that when you have a, don't have a cell phone or a television. And I think when you look at the storyline and you're talking to your writers, what is the backstory? Why are they doing that? Where is the motivation for that? And for me, that was another reason why I kind of really enjoyed the show. And I liked watching it because it took me on a, a journey. You know, I was very fortunate to do the national tour of Ragtime. And I uh, saw the theater being built on 43rd street and to watch people like Frank, Frank Galati, who is no longer with us in Graziella in a room with Terrence McNally, that journey having been a performer beside changing costumes, 28 times over two acts. There's that journey from the beginning of, of the century, right? To the end of the mm-hmm. century. And I think that Bonnie and Clyde was a responsibility to be a good storyteller and to educate people, to entertain them, but also make them fall in love with these characters. It, that conflict is what we go to the theater about. It's to feel something. It's to feel emotions. It's actually, you want to see a beautiful set, and it's great, we saw the car, and you know, it's all, it was yeah. all there. But at the same point, it's a responsibility, I think, uh, to be that storyteller. And I think most of the things that you'll probably look on my wall, on the posters and all the things that I have, It's about storytelling and all the subjects are, there's nothing safe. Mm -hmm. Theater shouldn't be safe. Theater should take you on a journey and you should experience something. If you come out and you're like, God, Anne Juliet, what a great, great hit. Why? Because it's bringing in young people. And Anne Hathaway gets to retell a story that William Shakespeare wrote. Clever, clever, Mm -hmm. clever, clever. People recognize that it gets right into their intellect. And I believe that's why that and plus the popular music in today's culture with young people. But at the time, the audience that we had at the time, they looked at Bonnie and Clyde and they went, hey, that's a good night out. We're going to buy a mm-hmm. ticket to that.
1: It's first. I mean, I, I would say it was true looking over your your CV, as it were, on the website. it It is very much about Diverse, a very diverse range of shows that all have very strong characters at the middle of it. That was sort of the thing that I I I, I noticed myself. And I should say, and if you... Patrick, you, dangerous. You, and mm-hmm. dangerous. They're all, they all got a little bit of danger. So what well, can I ask you then, r- real fast, what, what to you was, like, just because it was the first show that popped in my head when you said that, what was dangerous for you about a show like On the Town? You know, reviving one of the quintessential sort of early musical... Uh, early modern American musicals.
2: If I could say the two shows that I believe that we've done, the Fluffernutter shows would probably be "Nice Work If You Can Get It" and "On the Town."
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Something about the producing team—we we were very active. Mm-hmm. It was not not hard to raise money for an Americana show like "On the Town." Mm-hmm. It was a feel-good musical. I knew all the performers in it. As a matter of fact, Jack and I fed them. We brought food. We we were involved, and 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 we felt really good about it. It looked beautiful. Mm-hmm, maybe it did. The theater, Maybe the theater was a little bit too big. Maybe we could have survived in a smaller theater. But the decisions that were made, beautiful, beautiful sets by Beowulf for this production, mm-hmm. the, the way they moved and the dancing that was that was put in play was astounding. Having been a dancer, I've always looked at dance shows and I've really, I'm excited for them. I'm very excited for Tommy. We're going mm-hmm. in on uh, tomorrow, or was it tomorrow? Thursday, for the meet and greet. Lauren Lotaro, a very good friend, brilliant choreographer, was a performer. We performed together. Um, having come from Chicago, I'm very excited. Great dance show. When I was mm-hmm. younger and um, one of my... Mentors was alive Tony Stevens I performed Tommy up at North Shore Music Theater so there's a I've a journey of that show plus I have friends from the original show 30 years ago so when the show came into our purview it's a brand it's rock it's something we don't have on Broadway it's a revival I have a good history with revivals. I've win Tony's for revival. <laughs> There's something about history. It's something about storytelling. It's something about all of that. And I and I'm really I'm pinning my hopes on Tommy because it's the same thing. So I don't know if I've answered the question, but as you see, I you have. You have. Yeah, <laughs> no, I,
1: I think I think you have because I, I think it's important for every artist and creative person to have. Something verging on a mission statement, like you say, like they're character driven, they're dangerous, they're so-and-so. But there's also stuff that you love and there's people you love to work with. And just because it doesn't tick all the boxes of the mission statement doesn't mean you shouldn't bring your talent to it. It's like, no, sometimes we do things because it's fun. Like, that's another reason why we do this. And I do have to
2: say this to you, Patrick. Sometimes when you get on a show, when the train has left the station... There's just no stopping it,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: you know and you know what's mm-hmm. going to happen, and you're on a parallel track <laughs> to that train, and you can't <laughs> catch up, you can't get close, and it it you just you take a deep breath and you hope for not a bad crash, yeah. And so, and sometimes <laughs> I'm sorry I, I speak like I speak, I I don't speak any mm-hmm. different. It, it it is part of this industry, and mm-hmm. it is part of what I have to water off the back sometimes because sometimes the shows leave the station and you know you're not gonna it's not gonna win
1: <laughs> oh yeah no well that's what I uh, a good friend of mine uh pat o'neill when he was on this podcast doing uh he he was in the revival of um on a clear day you can see forever he was a swing in that and he talks about his first broadway show and he talks about what he learned he learned that feeling on that show because he just thought oh this is going and it's going and it's going and it's going and then they kind of opened and he went oh okay and then he sort of watched everybody like you say he felt he was sort of out of like watching everybody running forward he's just like it's just not gonna we're not gonna (laughs) get there but here but i'm you know i'm happy for the work like here we go let's just go you know and it was that very mixed kind of feeling of like Ooh, all right you know this is this is what it's going to be and I, that's an important thing to know if you're going to go into theater that is a feeling you'll have sometimes you know what i liken that to
2: watching the road runner or bugs bunny fall off the cliff and they haven't hit the bottom but you know it's coming and all you see is the smoke coming up but the pain of that fall <laughs> i mean I, yeah i mean it's kind of why we all as kids watch cartoons, didn't we? Right. Because absolutely that, and you know, and and unfortunately, it's a bit of reality of the theater. You know, one in four shows really make it, and you know, you got to pick wisely. And I hoped over the years we presented things. I never had, never had an investor call and say that show was terrible. I mm. mean, we always we we always picked as best as we could. You know, given the information we had at the time.
1: I mean, it's it's, you know, every aspect of this business is, of course, tricky. But like, I I would imagine from your standpoint, like the the sort of, you know, 10,000 foot view you can have is it's just but it you know, it's great to be able to see what's what people are doing and, and what the landscape is. And you have your opinion about whatever the person and the stuff. But it must be so hard to when a piece of work comes your way to be like. I, I don't know, like I maybe yes, maybe no, but you know, I know I like it, but w- what does that mean? And what is my investment base and all these things you have to keep in, you know, all those balls you have to keep in the air.
2: There are always decision making during a process. I'm going to go back to the question you started this with. Having a, biz, having a producing partner who has a different mm-hmm. opinion might not always end in success. I could see his way or he could see my way or we can compromise. But it's always interesting to have somebody else. A lot of people who produce today are alone and they have nobody to talk to. They have no one to bounce things off of. And I think sometimes having a producing partner is beneficial for not just that person, but for you. Mm -hmm. And as you move things along and they have different points of view. Jack and I grew up completely differently. We look at theater very differently. He looks at more Shakespeare theater and I'm like, yeah, been there, done that. But I don't know that I would do a show because I don't I don't want to say I don't understand it, but I I I understand the appeal. But I have to do something I love. I have to do something I'm in it for. I'm not just a salesman selling units in a Broadway musical. I have to love it. I have to put it out on social media. I have to stand behind it. And I think that's something that young people today are looking at, but they don't realize how many steps it takes to get to that point.
1: Oh, yeah, it's it's a. I always cite this statistic of you famously Stephen Sondheim won three Tony Awards for best score in three consecutive seasons. And I can't imagine three show someone having three shows open in three consecutive seasons like it would just the development process and the 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 way things are created these days. It just things move even if you're working on that many shows and you probably are. The fact that they, the way they get into the pipeline is so, so much different now than it was. I mean, obviously that was 50 years ago, but you know. It's, I, I would
2: tell you that pre-COVID, Jack and I could work on multiple Broadway shows at the same time. And we just went, 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 went. We mm-hmm. didn't really think about it. We had five shows in the season before everything shut down in, was that March of 2020. Mm-hmm. We had five five shows and we had raised money and we were in all of them. And it was exciting and it was exhilarating and then the bubble burst and it's it's been hard for people to uh, fill those balloons again it's people they feel very empty there hasn't Mm. been a lot of good things that have come around we've had a few but i'm hoping this season will
1: bring some to light well that's good i mean yeah obviously also you have to be an eternal optimist about these things otherwise <laughs> what are you doing in this business?
2: <laughs> well, all I can tell you is behind closed doors when something is approached and we sit and we discuss it, it's it's a clear yes or a no or there isn't a maybe anymore. It just doesn't mm-hmm. work.
1: It just doesn't have that kind of feeling to it anymore.
2: If it's too expensive, it's never going to work.
1: Yeah. What do you think is the big difference between a Broadway musical audience and a Broadway play audience?
2: Your Broadway play audience, in my opinion, is more educated because you're talking about a literary piece that they have to be well-read or have or are well-read to understand and look into a piece. Let's look at Death of a Salesman. We, We raised money for Death of a Salesman. It did not attract the audience it should. A musical can find an audience depending on how it's marketed. A play... You're really looking at older people that have always bought tickets to plays. That's there was a there was a time on Broadway we could we knew that those were advanced ticket buyers. We know that when we put out that card with the discount code, 40 or 50% of those people who got it were gonna buy tickets. It doesn't work that way anymore. So a Broadway play and a Broadway musical are different. Obviously, a play can be on Broadway for less than five million dollars, but a musical can't even get anywhere near 10 million anymore. I think, Mm. you know, even, you know, shows that have big casts, 20 people in the cast, you're looking between 15 and $20 million for a a musical. That's hard. That's hard. Look at Cabaret. Look at the costs that are coming in. And then you also want to build an environment. You want to build something that's going to make people feel. We did that with The Great Comet. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. the first time the Schuberts ever did that to a theater. And it was a huge success as far as I'm concerned. People absolutely love that but that's what 54 was that's what the uh studio 54 was and then they changed it and then they've changed it again and so people are always looking for, for a different way to approach immersive um environmental is the buzzwords these days mm-hmm. because then people feel like they're in it
1: do you do you feel like people audiences need like you know with the ticket prices being what they are and I do agree with Hal Prince that theater's always been expensive but When people look at the ticket price, there's a sort of vibe. I know it was really big before the pandemic where it felt like they needed to see the money on the stage. Do you you feel that there's a pressure on producers or designers on everybody to put like, this is your budget and I better see every dollar of it right there where I'm where I'm looking at?
2: Yeah, there were about 10 years when I was producing that you had to put it all on stage. I would say that although the budget for um, nice work, if you can get it, was medium, it looked beautiful it was so fun it was it was everything you need in the back room bar and everything you needed in the mansion and everything you needed out in the hamptons you know it mm-hmm. it was it was all it was beautiful but it was practical and that we were very smart in budgeting it I think there was a time for before COVID where everybody needed to see everything on stage. I think we're getting to a point now where we don't, we just need to use our imaginations a little bit more and create what we want to see and concentrate on the characters and with a story that they're telling. And if they're telling a really good story and you're already involved and you're in it, it's not going to matter if there's another show curtain that comes in or another set from another scene, you know, Some some like it hot was, I guess, the best example of utilitarianly using sets Mm. that they were able to double up those sets and do things to make all those different scenes. And then they made it happen so quickly back and forth. I mean, I give that show so much kudos. I really was hoping that that show would kind of save Broadway because I love the storytelling, but it Mm. was complicated. You know, you have a movie Mm -hmm. with four different subplots or five different subplots and all these characters, it's very hard. People lose their attention. People get confused. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I have to say, I don't like the dumbing down of Broadway. I'd like mm. people to go to Broadway and feel comfortable about the product that they're going to see. Even if it's a retelling or it's a, it's a new script, like Enemy of the People, it's a new script. People coming to Broadway, they're going to see this new interpretation of it. That's good. That that keeps people invigorated to see these titles and therefore gives
1: producers an opportunity to produce them. How do I put this? It's it's not that the business is is sort of getting out of control, or maybe it is. It just feels that like the there are so many moving parts all at the same time. And it's I think when we find the greatest success with shows or with live theatrical experiences. It's one of the ways i always i i feel good about the 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 theater when I look at the state of of cinema because cinema being such a trend towards green screens and artifice and animation and all that the experience you get in the theater is live it has to be and like that's that's what makes it theater and I think that you know, even if you have some great, you know, eventhove, you know, video stuff all over the place, you can incorporate that. But what audiences are coming for is for the live experience. And I think that like you say, when you strip, you can so you can strip a play all the way down to the studs and just have, you know, fluorescent lighting or whatever. People are there to see people do a thing like that's really they want that human connection that there may be missing in the cinema.
2: I'm going to give you two examples of what you just said. One, I'm yeah. very proud to say that I was a producer on Pippin. Mm-hmm. And while I was not making creative choices, I love the streamed down, stripped down version that mm-hmm. that was. That was great. But it also had a circus tent. It also had all the acrobatics. It had all the dancing. It had all the story touring a uh, telling. It had all the armor for the men. And then look at lot. It's come mm-hmm. back. It's so silly. It's ridiculous silly. You sit there and you go, Really? That fart joke for what? Nine minutes? Really? Come on. (laughs) But unfortunately, that is what the audience is expecting today. So you have to mix it up. When you're Mm -hmm. presenting a show, you have to mix it up. It can't all be hit, 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 hit. It's got to have a little bit. And you have to dumb it down for those audiences. And it has to look pretty. It just does. It's all visual for some Mm -hmm. people.
1: Well, Spamalot has. I was actually talking to Jack about this last time I, I saw him because he didn't realize that Spamalot had such a following. I guess he told me, but the, no, he did not. It's Spamalot being a show that now everyone has done in high school for ten years. There's, I, I think, Spamalot has become in an interesting way, sort of the ultimate theater comfort food for a lot of people because they did it. Sure. They maybe did it twice because uh, it was everywhere for a long time. And now, when they go to see it, what they're laughing at is just not only the original film, which they know all the lines to, but then also the show that they know back in front and they're remembering the time they did it. And when we did it, that joke didn't work. You know, there's a one time it didn't work and wasn't that, f- you know, so there's so much emotion mixed up in Spamalot as, as, a, as a show. It kind of, I think, has a, the moment a very unique position in musical theater because of that. But,
2: but add a layer to that. Spamalot's a brand. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. It's a Monty Python brand. Absolutely. You're going in to see slapstick. You're yes. going in to see ridiculous jokes that you would pull at home that no one would laugh at, that 1,400 people in the theater are going to laugh at. Mm-hmm. So it's a brand. Was it really smart to do it? Absolutely. Is it still on Broadway and selling tickets? Absolutely. The brands do quite well. The brands also help, like you said. The History, I did it when mm. I was a kid. My son did it, my wife did it in college, whatever. But again, the brand is a known show, so when you see Spam a lot, you're like, Oh, that's going to be a good time, okay? Mm. We'll get to it. you know, that's a no brainer. That's kind of what Broadway used to be.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Yeah, get back. you got to get back there. You know, like I would tell you this year, uh, we had the opportunity of seeing Shucked,
1: mm-hmm. and I saw it.
2: I saw it twice. Silly, silly, silly. But they took a subject matter and they made it into something and people really enjoyed it. And kids could go to it and families could go to it and adults could go to it. And it was a bit of a relief to have Mm -hmm. that on Broadway at the
1: time that it was there. So, But also tying in the conversation about brands, what what, I, I was very interested when you first told me that you guys were doing... Tommy, because I mean, talk about a brand, first of all, from the show to the who to the whole aspect of it. But I was shocked to realize until you pointed it out that it has not never been revived in the last 30 years. 30 and that's years. Yeah, <laughs> that's absolutely amazing. So how did how did obviously you're, you're starting on it this week? How did how did that to- Tommy come into your guys sphere of influence? It
2: actually came through another producer. And uh, that particular producer was doing the Doubtfire tour. And I have friends and a very, Rob McClure is a very dear friend who is the lead of that. And I just saw so many good things that Stephen Gabriel and Ira Pittman were doing that when that came into, you know, that call came Mm -hmm. in and we could, you know, work on the show, we jumped at it again, storytelling, no question, a young man who has a disability who turns that disability into something fantastic in an East London town and makes the town famous. And all of a sudden everybody buys into it. Kind of a feel good story, right? Something really touching that has a reinvention by its director and its choreographer, Lauren Lotaro, who I love and I've seen her work and I've seen how she's blossomed. The reviews were wonderful. The Goodman had a sellout on this. It just seemed like the right thing. And sometimes you have to go by your gut. Mm-hmm. And when Tommy came into our lives. Both Jack and I said, we're, we need to do this because it's kind of in line with everything that we've done. And it's a dance show mm-hmm. and it has a great message as mm-hmm. you're going to anything in your life if you work hard enough at it and you practice hard enough at it. And that's a adage. That's a thing you grew up with when you were a kid, You know, to so have that included in a show. I can't tell you why in 30 years it hasn't been done. Maybe somebody owned rights. Maybe they were not available. Maybe the licensing rights have been out and people just didn't feel anybody
1: cared. But I do think the timing could be quite good on it. Bruce, it's been amazing to talk to you about all these wonderful, wonderful things. I have to ask, as we sort of wrap up, though, uh, to bring it back to Bonnie and Clyde, what is your, I think I know the answer, though, based on previous things you've said, what is your favorite song in Bonnie and Clyde? How about a dance? There we go. I thought that's what you were going to (laughs) say. It's
2: it's just the most romantic. It's how I feel. And I I don't know about anybody that listens to your podcasts, but I am 50% ruled by my emotions. Mm. It's what makes me a unique person. If I thought like everybody else all the time, my shows wouldn't look very good and I wouldn't be very good at them. So I have to go with that. And Bonnie and Clyde was an emotional. That song was very emotional for me.
1: That's what I thought you were going to say. That's a wonderful, wonderful sound of it for that song. So it's Sunny Sunnyspot com is your guy's website. Um, and what is there anything else you can tease out that's coming up aside from Tommy kicking off this week? Kicking off rehearsals this week, I should say. It's not opening this week, folks. Don't go try to buy tickets quite yet. they'll, they'll be no, available no, no. soon. <laughs>
2: Beginning of March, we go into previews. We open on March 28th. Uh, mm. Jack and I have some other projects that we're currently working on. They're working through that. I, we're very excited. We were part of the new Titanic movie that was done in London and the tour in London. And it's coming out on Netflix, which is really exciting. Mm. We also have American Sun, which was a show we produced just as the pandemic was hitting also. That's also on Netflix. And uh, we're investigating new things. Other it's things, a, right? Yeah. It's a new year.
1: <laughs> yes, that's true. It is a new year. That's good. I, re- I respect the coyness of your of your answer. It's very very in keeping. Uh, Never
2: talk about year. something until it's real.
1: There you go. I oh, 100% agree with that. That is that is my philosophy. Uh, you save yourself a lot of
2: embarrassment in the future. Yes. <laughs>
1: and a lot of heartache, I think, in general. Yes. Uh, sure.
2: Bruce, where can people find you on uh, on the internet? Well, I'm on Facebook under my name, Bruce Robert Harris. I'm also under my name on Instagram, Bruce Robert Harris. And um, Sunny Spot website with shows and stuff. And I would just make a plug to two of my most favorite shows that we've produced, um... Magic Mike is still performing in London. So if anybody's listening in London, go see that. We're, we're quite sold out, but it's been a real success there. And also in Vegas and Chris Angel in Vegas. Mm. They're fun shows and we're happy to have been a part of them. And there are long running shows. So we're very happy mm. to have
1: That's great.
2: Bruce, thank you so much. Thank
0: you, Patrick. How about a dance? What do you say? I got some moves that I'd love to show you Let's find a spot and dance the night
1: Original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn please rate and review the original cast on your podcatcher of choice it's the easiest way to help other listeners find the show go to bit.ly slash original cast store for original cast merchandise like t-shirts tote bags and more become a patron of the original cast at patreon.com slash original cast pod so you can listen to our bonus podcast the original cast at the movies on the socials we're at original cast pod special thanks to our social media manager bethany zalecki
2: hi bethany how are you today hope all is well We need you, so keep doing the fine work you're
1: doing. (laughs) Because without you, we're nowhere. (laughs) My thanks to Bruce Robert Harris for coming and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal.